all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, host of Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking, a show that explores issues that relate to you and your family, from mental health obstacles and family interactions to handling life disruptions. Whatever it is, we're here to help. Find out what we're all about and subscribe to the podcast by using any podcast app or by downloading our MPB Public Media app. Good morning and thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. And I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner and associate professor of preventive medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And joining me in the studio today, I have Amanda Green. She is also a nurse practitioner. Um, who specializes in neurology, and that's really what we're going to dig into today with some special attention to multiple sclerosis and migraine headaches. Um, I I happen to have personal experience with both of those, so I'm really excited about today's show, and um, I think you guys that are listening will be excited as well. If you want to join our conversation, or you can always email us, fit at mpbonline.org. Good morning, Amanda. Good morning, Josie. Thank you so much for for coming on and and helping me talk about this. This is actually the first show we've done on multiple sclerosis in all the years I've been doing Southern Remedy, so I'm excited about that. Um, We've had some headache shows before, and they always turn out great because it's something that a lot of folks are dealing with, so I'm hoping we'll get some good calls um, and some good questions this morning. But tell me a little bit about yourself and your background and what you're doing these days. Well, um, I've been a nurse practitioner for several years now, and my specialty training was in multiple sclerosis. I did a fellowship at the university with Dr. Robert Herndon Mm -hmm. back in um, 2013, and I actually followed him around for a whole year before he turned me loose with his (laughs) patients. And And he's retired now, right? He has. He has since retired. Um, In 2020, I ventured off by myself and opened up my own clinic, and it's located in Ridgeland at 892 Center Street, which is right off County Line Road. We have three providers there. We have a provider that does specialty in headaches. She's a certified headache specialist, Karen Freeman. Jessica Lowry is a certified hypertension specialist, which she's mainly focusing on stroke prevention. And we're open Monday through Thursday, 8 to 5, and Friday, 8 to noon. Wonderful. And you said since 2020, which what a time to, to be opening a, a clinic. Uh, I know we uh, we were talking before the show when we opened Lifestyle Medicine Clinic, we were kind of borrowing exam rooms and other specialties, and we got our own kind of standalone clinic in July of 2020. And that was quite an adventure of having this clinic space and, you know, trying to get folks back in safely and get them taken care of. But kind of tell us about what a multiple sclerosis specialist is like what do you do so we have this group of people that 
are diagnosed with this disease, and we manage their disease by managing their symptoms and the disease itself by prescribing disease-modifying therapies. Yeah, and it can be a very complex disease with a lot of nuances to it. So it takes folks that are kind of specialized in that to really look at all that's going on and help build a plan for those individuals. Absolutely. Well, if we have listeners that might not be as familiar with the term multiple sclerosis, tell me what that is. So multiple sclerosis is an immune-mediated disease. It's always kind of been categorized in the category of um, immuno... um, Like an autoimmune type. Yes, autoimmune type disorder. disorder. But the scientists behind it, the theories behind it, have leaned more toward an immune-mediated disease of the central nervous system. So you've got the peripheral nervous system, which is everything outside of the brain and spinal cord, and then you've got the central nervous system. And individuals that have a genetic predisposition uh, at some point are exposed to environmental factors that cause a breakdown in the body's ability to function normally, and the immune system in and of itself begins to attack the brain and spinal cord. And it leaves behind damage, um, to the nerve cells, Mm -hmm. and that creates a havoc in the central nervous system. Yeah. I almost think of it like um, like if your brain's the computer, right, and the spinal cord is almost like the the big power cord that comes off the the back of the computer, and if it got kind of frayed in in certain spots along that, along the cord... um, you know, then you start, depending on how frayed it is, how big the, the damage to that kind of lining that kind of holds the power cord all together, um, then you start to see some symptoms depending on where those frays are. Um, and essentially, it just you just don't get as much power and connection between the, the brain, the spinal cord, and then those peripheral nerves that you were talking about. Exactly. And if you think about how fast does a central nervous system work? So if you're cooking dinner and you touch that hot oven, how quick do you need to move your hand? Very quickly. So, <laughs> Depends on how much time you want off work, I guess, but very quickly. Yes. So those nerve signals can travel up to 220 miles per hour wow. to get you able to move your hand as quick as you possibly can. Well, in MS, when you have damaged nerve cells, they may not feel the heat mm. And so they're going to leave their hand there longer or their muscles don't move as well because the nerve signal that contracts the muscle is damaged. So therefore, in them trying to move it, it may take longer. They may get second, third degree burn. Absolutely. Whereas you and I would have... Well, probably get a little blister, you know, exactly. going on there. And that's, a, you know, a really good way to think about it. And I want to make sure that folks um, kind of picked up on two things. When we think about your nerves, there are nerves that are sensation nerves where we feel things. And that can be pressure or heat or pain. And then there are motor nerves that make us move. It's what when you say, hey, cross your legs, your legs cross or pick up this pin and write. And you can have alterations in either of those or both of those depending on where we often hear them called lesions or plaques or these different kinds of things Um, and it may be that you have trouble feeling things it may be that you have trouble moving 
or it may be a combination of those two things together. As well as vision. Absolutely. That often um, is one of the presenting Mm -hmm. kind of symptoms that people will have is some alterations in their vision. So we kind of talked a little bit about what causes it, right? And you mentioned kind of a genetic predisposition. So Mm -hmm. maybe other people in the family that have multiple sclerosis, that might put you at kind of a little bit higher risk for that. Doesn't mean that everybody who has a family member that has multiple sclerosis is going to develop multiple sclerosis. Or even, you know, if you have it, looking back in your family, you may not be able to pinpoint somebody that you knew in your family that that had it, right? That is correct. Uh, and then some kind of kind of trigger that, that you're talking about. And unfortunately, we don't know exactly what a lot of those triggers are. We know some things that we think kind of increase it, but there's no like, oh, that absolutely right there. Don't do that, you know, and it'll it'll keep these things from happening, right? There's a lot of speculation that vitamin D deficiency mm-hmm. has been known to people that are deficient in vitamin D seem to be more prone to, prone having, to it. have it. And also um, the further you live from the equator, mm-hmm. which predisposes you right, to, vitamin to vitamin D, D. deficiency. Caucasians uh, in the history and literature of this disease seem to be more affected, Mm -hmm. but we're seeing a different trend these days with African-Americans. I know in my patient population, 54.8% are African-American. Obesity and exposure to the Epstein-Barr virus, Mm -hmm. that has been the main uh, virus trigger, trigger that we suspect. And, of course, having another autoimmune disease or a family history of autoimmune mm-hmm. diseases. And I find that patients don't really know the most common autoimmune diseases, and that is type 1 diabetes mm-hmm. or juvenile diabetes, pernicious anemia, psoriasis, uh, Sjogren's syndrome, mm-hmm. ARB, um, IBS, thyroid disease, lupus, and rheumatoid. So many that we don't really um think about as being autoimmune in nature, especially the diabetes one. You know, I mean, of course, those of us in healthcare that do that, we, we sit through all those patho classes and learn all that. Um, but the general public may not realize that that's kind of an you know autoimmune attacking of the pancreas that, that causes that. Um, but, you know, when we talk about vitamin D deficiency, that doesn't mean if you have vitamin D deficiency, you're going to get MS. Um, we talk about in healthcare or in, in medical science correlations, right? And right. so when we look at people who have MS, a lot of them have vitamin D deficiency. And so it's kind of chicken or egg, like, you know, which which one came first? Is it completely irrelevant? It's just something that we've noticed. And so that's where you'll see more research being done into that um, to determine if there really is a causative nature to to those types of things. Epstein-Barr virus, which is a very common virus, gives you mono. Um, So a lot of people have had Epstein-Barr virus. Again, just things that have been found to be associated with, um, but not necessarily causative, but to be determined. You know, that's the the, um, thing about medical science is we're always learning more doing more, developing new therapies for things, and that's what's really exciting. So you mentioned in your patient population, a little over half are African-American. What's kind of the average age of onset for multiple sclerosis? So typically 20 to 40 years old. So it's a young person's Mm -hmm. disease. And actually, Josie, it's the number one disabling neurological condition among young people in the Mm -hmm. United States. So if you see someone young with a handicap sticker, you can probably yeah, guess. Yeah, don't roll your eyes at them. There's probably yeah. some MS involved. Um, usually uh, it affects women three to four times more than men. Um, and as this previous studies have shown, um, Caucasians tend to get this disease mm-hmm. more than Asians and 
uh, Hispanics and African Americans, but we are seeing a trend on the African American. Tick in that a little bit. We okay. are okay. From MPB Think Radio, you're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, and I'm your host Josie Bidwell. Joining me in the studio today is Amanda Green. She is a nurse practitioner with uh, Mississippi Neurology Care Clinic Incorporated, um, which is in Ridgeland, and um, we are talking about neurology today. And we spent the first segment of the show talking about multiple sclerosis. And we're going to continue on um, with some more information about that today. All right, Amanda, we talked about you know more prevalent in women, um, usually younger age, twenty to forties for onset. But what does onset look like? Like, what are some common symptoms that people present with? So, one of the most common symptoms that I find among my patients and the literature supports is random numbness and tingling. Um, they can become Stiff, tightness. Mm -hmm. They'll often go to their primary care doctor and they think they have arthritis, Mm -hmm. uh, muscle spasms. Optic neuritis, about 25% of your patients are going to present with some type of optic neuritis. Um, Based on experience of sending my patients to ophthalmology, Mm -hmm. I have found that number to be really higher than previously thought. Uh, Vertigo. It's interesting that I probably am, I would say, maybe the only person that thinks MS when someone has vertigo. (laughs) Vertigo. (laughs) You're like, oh, it goes over there. Yep. Clumsiness. They have bladder issues. Mm -hmm. Um, And they'll often blame it on having children. They have urgency and frequency. And that may not be the case. Uh, Recurrent UTIs. Mm -hmm. Anxiety and depression. I remember training with Dr. Herndon, and he would say, do you like going to the grocery store? And I thought... Um, no. <laughs> I went yesterday and it, I, I was miserable the entire time. But these patients tend to have a, a really heavy anxiety. Mm. It totally wipes their memory and their cognitive ability to think of what they came there for. Right. So um, we also see those cognitive issues, mm-hmm. but those are typically later on and after the disease burden has built up. But... For the most part, this is a disease of, uh, that is not easily identified. Yeah, and that's what I was going to highlight from that is if you're listening, you may be like, well, I have a lot of those symptoms, right? It's because they're, they're vague and they can be a multitude of other things, right? You know, if you've got numbness and tingling, it can be a pinched nerve somewhere. You've got, you know, muscle aches and joint aches. It very well could be arthritis or some other kind of, you know, inflammatory um, disorder going on. You've got a weak bladder. It very well could be all those babies that you had, that kind of stuff. Um, So oftentimes it takes a little while to get a diagnosis for for folks um, that are, are dealing with these things because it they can be not written off, but explained by other medical conditions, um, and can can be very frustrating for the individual, um, and I'm sure it's frustrating for the providers as well. Because you know, from a primary care standpoint, you know, we always want to do our best to figure out what's going on and get folks to where they where they need to be. But I probably don't think MS when I hear vertigo. Now, if somebody comes in and tells me they've lost their vision, or something, I'm like, okay, well, let's get let's get a picture of your brain. Let's see what's going on um, in there. But these more vague symptoms, um, it may not happen that way. 
you know, we shared over the break. My mom has multiple sclerosis and she started having symptoms when uh, I was nine. And that's actually what led me to um, decide to have a career in healthcare because um, I saw how much she struggled with getting a diagnosis and um, I wanted to, to do it better. You know, I was like, I can do that better. Um, I can help people. Uh, and, you know, and I saw how hard she worked to get back to, um, you know, feeling like herself because that's really, you know, she's just, just so tired all the time and had so much trouble walking. Walking and um, you know when I was little, it, it I didn't appreciate the the level of um, deficit that she had. But she would have word finding difficulties, you know, where she would like be telling me to go do something, and it made zero sense to me what she was telling me to go do. I remember one time she said, I need for you to get the clothes out of the mailbox. And I was like, did we order something? Like, I, you know, I was trying to figure out, and she was wanting me to get the clothes out of the dryer. <laughs> and we went back and forth for, for a while on that. And so, it, you know, it can be frustrating for families um, as well when you're trying to, to dig through some of those things. Now, you mentioned optic neuritis. And so if people are not familiar with the term optic neuritis, what, what is that? And how would you know if you had that? So our optic nerves are coated with a fatty substance. It's a phospholipid called myelin. And this myelin sheath tends to be the target of our immune system in MS. So it's only normal that once those cells enter the the breakdown of the blood-brain barrier that they find targets that have myelin. Mm-hmm. That's what they're programmed to destroy. So typically when you have just the minimum destruction of myelin, you're going to see slowed reaction, maybe some blurry vision. Um, My patients will describe it as like someone just smeared Vaseline Mm. across their eye. They can still see, but the picture's not clear. Mm -hmm. Um, But yet it's not blurry. Mm -hmm. It's distorted. And their color vision tends to change, and bright reds will look orange, and blacks will look gray. Um, So what happens in the central nervous system when that attack occurs, depending on the devastation, considering that it can be just a small amounts of myelin Mm -hmm. has been destroyed versus you can affect the nerve cell itself, then that patient may never get their vision back. Mm. That's pretty rare, but I do have a few patients Mm -hmm. that are blind in one eye from an MS attack. Mm -hmm. And there are several different kind of types of multiple sclerosis in terms of their symptoms, right? Um, And we won't get too in the weeds on that, but it has to do with, you know, kind of how frequently the attacks are or flares uh, and, you know, how much, whether the the deficits that occur during the flare are maintained following the flare being over with, whether, you know, those types of things. But ultimately, how do we get a diagnosis of of MS? So basically, this disease is diagnosed on clinical symptoms with a combination. I tell my patients, we're going to prepare to go to court. (laughs) And so we are collecting evidence here. Mm -hmm. So number one, you got to have the symptoms that stack up in your favor, which is not in your favor. But if we're going to determine this to be a diagnosis, we're going to do a lumbar puncture on most patients. There are some patients that we don't do lumbar punctures on. 
And just to briefly explain that is the evidence is overwhelming Mm. that it's MS. Mm -hmm. The markers on the MRI imaging is just so MS-y that we don't need that. So MS-y. I like that. We don't need that lumbar puncture. But we do, um, the whole central nervous system should be scanned. We scan the brain, the cervical and thoracic area. We're looking for those lesions or Mm -hmm. plaques that you talked about, which is evidence of damage that's been done to myelin. We do know this disease hits hard in some patients at first and it can destroy gray matter as well as white matter when we destroy gray matter we see permanent dysfunction Dysfunction. it doesn't come back and usually those are your patients in wheelchairs yeah and you know disorders to rule out just kind of like we mentioned earlier the symptoms can be vague and attributable to other disorders so oftentimes you may go through the workup for some of those other things if you've got frequent utis you may get you know kidney ultrasounds and bladder um you know cystoscopes to look at your bladder and you know all kinds of workups for those types of things um so you know it's definitely not one that often gets jumped to right off the bat uh, but as we're learning more and more about it and primary care providers are getting more comfortable picking up on these things, we're starting to see, hopefully, sooner diagnoses for people. Absolutely, Because the sooner we get diagnosed, the sooner we can start treatment, treatment. right? And so treatment has changed oh, has drastically um, since the time my mom was diagnosed. But um, walk us through, you know, if you have a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis, what are some of the treatments that folks may come into contact with? So although there are probably close to 30 treatments available now, and it's gotten so big that mm-hmm. it's hard to, to really keep track of all keep of them, track of yeah. it. Um, a lot of them duplicate the mechanism of action. And so, but acutely when a patient has an attack or they have a relapse, we treat them with IV steroids. steroids. Uh, and then for chronic treatment, we use immune, immunosuppressants or immunomodulators, depending on, you know, patient choice and we look at the patient as a whole and what's better for them um we probably have way more immunosuppressants than we do modulators Mm -hmm. uh so immunosuppressants are big guns and they come out and they stop this disease in their tracks and some of the most common ones i have i always tell every all my patients that i have about five drugs that i would take myself Mm. And so I will t- I will go over that with them, and then I'll tell them. But there are 27 or 28 on the market, and if you've heard of one and you want to talk about that one, I, I know about it as mm-hmm. well. So we have a, come a long way from when MS was first discovered. Yeah. I mean, really, we only had steroids and then kind of one other kind of immune suppressant to, to right. deal with. And, you know, when we're talking about steroids or you know other immunosuppressants, those are not benign medications. You know, there are always going to be um, risks associated with any pharmacological therapy, even even Tylenol. You know, any medication can have um, side effects. But chronic steroid use from a prevention standpoint, which, you know, that's what I like, that's what I do, prevention, um, I always want to think about what's that doing to our bones. Um, you know, chronic steroid use uh, thins, can thin the bones, increase your risk for osteoporosis, which increase your risk for fracture, and then poor mobility and all these different kinds of things. So I always recommend um, people who um, 
have been using chronic steroids. I'm not telling you don't to don't use them. Absolutely use them, but we want to do screening exams for osteoporosis sooner. Usually we do them in women when they're about 65 years of age, but if you're a man on um, kind of having used chronic steroid suppression um, for whatever disease you've been treating, you need a screen too. Um, we need to see if you've got um, thinning bones there and probably much sooner than age 65, depending on what time of your life you started that immunosuppression and that steroid use also increases your risk for diabetes. So we're going to check your sugar a little bit more frequently um, than perhaps you have thought that you needed to get it done. And then cataracts as well. Um, So that can be a challenge when you already have some visual deficits from, you know, MS. And we really want to be in tune with, is this a a change from what your vision was? Is that a flare that's coming on or do we, um, you know, have something more chronic going on? So routine um, eye exams uh, are really, really important when you're on um, chronic steroids, really any immunosuppressants um, to make sure that we catch those things early. Because if you've got cataracts, that can be fixed and your vision can be improved. And the safety is always the part I'm thinking about. If you can't see, you're going to fall down. Right. And if you fall down and you got brittle bones, you're going to break something. And then our mobility is going to be further uh, impaired and it's just going to set us back even longer. Um, But those meds have come a long way. And, uh, you know, there's uh, better safety profiles with some of them than just the the old ones we used to have. They've come a long way, uh, Josie, but they've also come with some. Yeah. Quite a bit of price tag with side effects. Yeah. So we, we're going to see a lot of infections, mm-hmm. increased infections, usually upper respiratory infections in most of the drugs that we use. It's an increased risk of reactivating old infections mm-hmm. that we've had, such as TB, shingles, um, Epstein-Barr virus. Yeah. We can get mono again, hepatitis B, herpes. Then we have this big word called PML, called yeah. progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy. It just rolls right off the tongue. Just right off that tongue? Right off the tongue. Well, what is that? So PML is a brain infection Mm. that's caused by the John Cunningham virus. Okay. And so we have to monitor the patient Mm -hmm. for that virus and monitor the index of that virus. And we do random screening with MRIs to Mm -hmm. look for this infection because it grows in the brain. Yeah, absolutely. It can be deadly. Yeah, absolutely. Then we have your regular common infusion reactions, just as if you... You can take a new antibiotic and have a reaction Absolutely. to it. Cancer has been known mm-hmm. to... Anytime you're messing around with the immune system, you know, you you may upregulate some things, downregulate some of the other ones. Absolutely. And then just your run-of-the-mill, like, yeast infections, mm-hmm. fungal infections in the mouth, all of those are kind of more prevalent when we have um, immunosuppression or suppressing things out there. Thanks for joining us this morning here on Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner at UMMC, joined by Amanda Green, who is also a nurse practitioner who specializes in neurology and in particular multiple sclerosis and also migraine headaches. And that's where we're going to turn the back half of this show and spend some time on migraine headaches. Um, I am myself a migraine sufferer, and I use the word sufferer because they are horrible. Um, If you have never had a migraine, I'm very jealous of you uh, because it is unlike anything, um, unlike a headache, unlike any regular headache that you've ever had. And that can be rather 
frustrating for um, family members that they're like, well, it's just a headache. Take some Tylenol. And I'm like, oh, baby, that's it's, it's a it's a full body something is what it is. You know, my migraines, I have visual auras. I have um, smell auras, which I smell cigarette smoke when it's not there. It's just it's not a not a fun time. Um, thankfully, when I made some dietary adjustments, um, I have seen considerable um improvement with cutting out artificial sweeteners and cutting out dairy both of those things helped my headaches um but i still have them from time to time and i know that a lot of people are are struggling with one getting the correct diagnosis and then getting the correct treatment for migraine headaches so tell us about like what makes a migraine headache different than just any of the other headaches out there well josie it's interesting that a lot of people don't know that a migraine is a neurological mm-hmm. condition. And you can actually have migraines without a headache. And they look at me like I've lost my mind. Oh, yeah. Uh, but it's a it's a neurological condition where you can have a headache or not, and it's associated with nausea, vomiting, light, noise, sensitivity that has a pain characteristic a throbbing, pounding, or pulsating. It's typically on one side of the head or the other, but it can be on both. A lot of patients will have it behind their eye. Mm-hmm. You can't see me because this is radio, but I just pointed right above my right eyeball. That's where mine are, and it feels like a little ice pick man is just behind my eyeball just trying to trying to skewer it. It typically lasts hours to days. You can have an aura or not. You don't have to have an aura. An aura is something that precedes the migraine, and it's typically a visual, Mm -hmm. but it can also be sensory or motor. Um, Some patients will see flashing lights, spots, dots, flickering things. The first time that happens to you. That is scary. It is. I have one patient that sees a little dog running across the herd. Stop visual. it. Mm-hmm. And I have a patient that also smells smoke. Okay. Well, I asked um, a neurologist I was seeing one time, I was like, I mean, why can't I smell cupcakes? Like, why? I mean, cigarette smoke, really? And they shared with me that some people smell like rotting flesh. And so I very quickly said, you know what? I will take my cigarette smoke and that will be just fine. Um, but it is. It is so real. Like, I can't impress upon people how real that that is. When I first started to have the cigarette smoke smell, I was working in the children's hospital and was so mad because I thought somebody was smoking in the children's hospital. And I was like going room to room looking for the looking for the person. And people were looking at me. And they said, what are you doing? And I told them, and they said, we do not smell any smoke. And it got to the point where I would have to ask my husband. I was like, is, this, is it real smoke or not smoke? And he'd be like, no, it's not real. So I had that whole workup. Because that can also be seizures. I mean, you can have some um, temporal lobe seizures that can cause some of that. So I had um, the lovely EEG with the stickies all over my hair and all that kind of stuff. And they determined that there was nothing that they could find wrong with my brain, um, that I had one and that it was uh, working appropriately and that it was probably just part of my my well-known migraine um, situation because I've had migraines since I was in my late teens um, with that. Um, I have the visual as well. I do not see anything as cool as a as a dog. Um, I have the it's it to me it looks like if you look at a light 
and then you look away from the light and that kind of loss of central vision you almost have when you look at something that's too bright like a glare and then that just kind of starts to flicker and then it turns into little zigzaggies and then it just marches your way across your vision takes mine about 20 minutes to go from the middle of my eyeball all the way to the peripheral um, side of my vision and it's so weird because I can say you know I think that's in my right eye but if I close my right eye I still see it in my left eye the brain is just a a fascinating organ that can do all these different kinds of things but you know there are regular headaches that the majority of people get you know that may just be i didn't drink enough water today you know i'm stressed about something that may be muscle tension it may be i slept wrong got a crick in my neck uh it can be you know some of these other more like cluster headaches which are a whole nother brand of of really difficult to treat and really very um very painful for folks um but a migraine um is unlike any of those other kinds of headaches and if you've ever had one you're shaking your head because you know um and you know, I have regular headaches, too, just like everybody, but you can tell, you know, and sometimes it'll wake me up. And as soon as my eyeball opens, I'm like, oh, that's one of the it's one of those. It's one of the migraines. It's going to be a migraine day. And it really does impact not just the pain, but you may have that nausea that you're talking about. For me, it's like fatigue, like I'm just so tired. And really the day after a migraine, I feel like I have um, been beaten by somebody like my brain's just tired i'm call like it a hangover yeah I, call, I say my brain feels fuzzy today you know that's my mom was like how's your head today and i'm like well it feels fuzzy today because it just got it got the snot kicked out of it yesterday you know um but just like we were talking about with ms and newer medications along the way there are newer medications for migraine headaches that folks um are finding a lot of great success with but before we get to those let's start with kind of traditionally what we would do with migraine headaches there would kind of be two approaches one like making it stop when it's hurting and then trying to keep it from occurring as frequently right correct so some of the the ones that make it stop we often call those abortive medications to kind of abort the attack um probably the most common one that people have been familiar with would be something like imitrex right correct. what is imitrex so imitrex is in a category of triptans those medications vasoconstrict and in order to really understand that i think it's important to know that there's a, a process that goes on behind the scenes of a migraine and mm-hmm. that is the blood vessels tend to dilate mm-hmm. they get big they get big and then that's what causes the throbbing the pounding mm-hmm. and the pulsating you may hear your heart beating you do in your ear mm-hmm. and there's a lot of theories about the mechanism of what's really going on behind the scenes but in the um where treatment is concerned is we try to attack areas. And, you know, triptans came out in the 90s. Sumatriptan was the first one to the market in the early 90s. And it was the first time that we had really had something for migraines Mm -hmm. in history. The other medicines that we play around with, don't really work that well. Mm-hmm. Well, we were kind of borrowing things from other disorders. You know, we um, for prevention, we would do things um, like calcium channel blockers, which are blood pressure medications. Again, trying to deal with that vasoconstrict, uh, vasoconstricted down. Um, sometimes beta blockers as well, which are blood pressure medicines. Um, some of the seizure medications like Topamax um, was a very um, frequently used one, but nothing that was just 
specific to that. And, you know, part of that was for a long time, they weren't real sure what was going on from a pathophysiology standpoint. And it's hard to build a medicine to target a specific part of the physiology if you're not quite sure what's going on in that physiology part. But thankfully, we've got much better medications now um, in, a, in a newer class of medications. And what's that newer class of medications called? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> the new class of medications, they're called calcitonin gene-related peptides. Another one of those really easy-to-remember sets of words. And so we use an acronym CGRP. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they regulate these levels of CGRP that's released off the trigeminal nerve. Mm-hmm. And they either regulate it by blocking the protein itself or they block the receptor of the protein. And by doing so, we've almost eliminated migraine headaches. Don't be teasing me. Because I've not tried one yet. I've been relatively apprehensive. I have have a big fancy uh, drug reaction called Steven Johnson syndrome that I have had to several medications and so I've been a little leery of of trying uh, a new one um, and actually the first time I had Stephen Johnson's was to uh, Cambia which is a powdered diclofenac that is often used for migraines and that that did not agree with me um, but I have seen so many patients do so well on these um, CGRP medications and you can use them for abortive and for prophylactic okay. and in a case like what you've described um, CGRPs are given in injections, and there's also a pill. Mm-hmm. So the injection is 30 days mm-hmm. in your system. It yeah. can stay and linger in your system. So I would never no, give you one of those. once you squirt that in there, there is no getting that back we out. We would do the pill that's out within <laughs> seven hours. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Josie Bidwell here with Amanda Green, and we've been talking about multiple sclerosis and migraine headaches, which is what we've landed on in this last segment of the show. We were talking about this relatively new class of medications to help with migraine headaches, which I'm super excited about. And you mentioned it comes in a variety of ways to do it, right? There are injections that last for 30 days, which I'm assuming that would be what we call a prophylactic medication to decrease the frequency of your migraine headaches. And then medicines that you can take when you feel an attack coming on to stop it, right? Can you use those together? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So obviously when you get a migraine, you want relief. Mm. And the most common thing and the most close to you is to grab something out of your medicine cabinet Mm -hmm. that you already have, NSAIDs, which is your Advil Aleve, right. Ibuprofen, Excedrin Migraine, Tylenol. Then we have the old class of triptans that we use for abortive therapy. There are nine triptans or maybe seven. Um, dyslexic. And that number is switched in my brain. Okay. And then there's Maxalt, and then there's one with an R. Um, Real packs. Yes. Um, but there are lots of them mm-hmm. out there. And then we have new, newer medications. One is called Rayval. It is It hits the pain receptors mm. on the meninges. Nice. And blocks pain receptors. And we know that is a cause of migraines. Right. 
Uh, Trudessa is a nasal spray that is used for um, migraines, and it is an ergotamine, mm, okay. or DHE. Yeah. And that works by vasoconstricting right. pain-producing blood vessels at the 5-HT1B receptor. Very fancy. And it inhibits the trigeminal neurotransmission at the peripheral and central 5-HT1D receptor site. So it's really shutting down that kind of initial kind of cascade that would cause the pain. Absolutely. We rarely use narcotics. And I'm glad you brought that up because that, you know, uh, again, in the past, you would often see um, like like butalbital and, you know, these um, type of medications that you would see for that. But while it may blunt the pain, it's not doing anything to actually change the pain modulation. So you're more likely to develop chronic pain syndromes with this type of thing. So we really, it's not that we don't want to treat your pain. We want to treat your pain appropriately and really target, not just blunt all of your pain, but really target what is causing the pain with the migraine headache. Now, in the last just couple of minutes of the show, I do want to talk about headache red flags, right? So there are things that you know, like if you've never had a migraine before, right, and you suddenly have a really bad headache, we want to think about what are the things that you want to ask yourself. You know, have I ever had a headache like this before? It's kind of one of the things that I ask patients when they come to see me with a headache. And they'll say, oh, it's really bad. I'm like, have you ever had this type of pain before? Has it ever been this bad before? Is there anything different about it? Because just like I was able to point to the places on my head for my headache, like that's my normal. And so mm-hmm. if it was somewhere different or if it was, you know, the worst pain I've ever felt in my life, those are, are a little bit more, hey, you might need to go on to the emergency room and get that checked out, right? If you've never had a loss of vision before and you have a really bad headache and you've lost your vision, that's a go on to the emergency room and let's get that taken care of um, and checked out. Um, often what's called a thunderclap headache, which is just like, boom, just this massive pain that descends down upon you. That's an emergency as well. So I think we tend to to brush off headaches a lot of the time because they're so common. We're like, well, it's just a headache. I'll take, you know. Or we label that person as a drug seeker when they come into the emergency room. Right. Uh, I try to teach my patients, if you ever have a high fever, a stiff neck, mm-hmm. you want to make sure that you go get that checked out. Prolonged nausea and vomiting. Right. Not just your typical nausea, I can't eat right now, but this is prolonged and you're throwing up. Worst headache of your life and something you've never experienced mm-hmm. before, it's always worth checking out. Absolutely. Uh, if it comes on suddenly and it quickly escalates mm-hmm. to severe pain, you need to have that checked out. Yeah. Slurred speech, weakness, numbness. I saw a patient this morning, and it starts in her hand, and it radiates up her arm as numbness. Wow. And it's a migraine. Yeah. But Um, if you've never had that sensation before and your arm is numb. Don't assume. Please go to the emergency room. That could be cardiac. That could be other neurological issues, strokes. All of that warrants an evaluation. And then, you know, if you are reaching for over-the-counter medications, even something that we consider relatively safe like Tylenol or, or ibuprofen, Please don't take more than what is recommended on the bottle um, because they do have potential to cause damage to liver, kidneys, depending on which one. And if you're taking one of the anti-inflammatories like Advil, Aleve, those types of things, 
I know that you're nauseous, but try to eat a little something with it. Because if you take those chronically on an empty belly, that really can irritate and, and actually burn almost your stomach lining and can lead to some um, some ulcer development and GI bleeds and those kinds of things. So just because they're over the counter doesn't mean we don't need to be careful with them. Um, and we can actually have rebound headaches from oh, when yes. we take, you know, if you're taking Tylenol or Advil, you know, every day or more days of the week than not, when you don't take it, you have a headache. And it's it's not um, because you actually were going to have a headache. It's because you're kind of withdrawing back from that medication there. And that can be a really difficult situation um, to try and treat to get that pain under control and get you backed off of those medications. And always tell your healthcare provider um, what you're taking, right? Because uh, there may be medications that we would like to try with you, but we don't want to double dip. We don't want to use um, a combo medicine that maybe has Tylenol in it when you're already taking Tylenol there. All right, this hour went by super quick. If you didn't get to hear the show in its entirety or you want to listen again, you can do that by searching for our podcast. Just look for Southern Remedy on your favorite podcasting platform. Southern Remedy is a production of MPB Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm Josie Bidwell. My guest today has been Amanda Green. Our wonderful producer is Kevin Farrell and the podcast producer is Jermaine Flood. Be sure to Tune in every weekday at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.